Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Hello, and welcome to this mini episode of Joanna and the Maestro. And the Maestro is sitting dead opposite me. So, Maestro, I'm going to fire the very first email question. This is a question for us both. What is the most intense classical music earworm experience you've ever had? Do you know what that an earworm experience is, Stevie? My head is infested with worms, earworms. And it doesn't take much to... It's like an electric shock when I hear a piece of music. Last night, late, there was a broadcast on Classic of Him. They played Delius' Walk to the Paradise Garden. And I was trying to read. <laughs> but that's the trouble with these things. I think that's what an earworm is. It doesn't let you alone. I was trying to read, and even now I can... The opening phrases, the wonderful way that Delius's orchestral interlude opens. Yeah, that crawls around. I think for me, if I hear a piece of music that I know very well, mainly, I can't get it out of my head. My head's just full of them. Laurie Johnson, the great composer, who I love so dearly, he wrote the music for The New Avengers, apart from anything else. He wrote a book about being a composer called Noises in My Head. And that's what he said. He said, that's all composing is. It's just the sounds in your head, which eventually you have to put onto paper. Whenever I see Fidelio, I leave, and for days and days afterwards, I have the prisoner's chorus in my head. Mm. I find that one of the most extraordinary, and I can't ever quite remember it right. It's quite hard to sing correctly, A, because it's a crowd of men singing it. But in my head, I hear it again and again. And I always want to go and get it and put it on again, if you know Mm. what I mean. Yes. Beautiful. This is a question for the maestro. From Anne from Sidmouth. I was lucky enough to go to two concerts last week at the Cadogan Hall, her favourite venue ever. The first featured the Royal Philharmonic and included Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto. The second, the National Symphony Orchestra of Ukraine, with Semenyenko playing Bruch's Violin Concerto. So you obviously love them both. The orchestras for the two events were seated in completely different places. If I use a clock to explain, with the conductor standing at 12, the RPO had the double basses at 3, the cellos in front and at 2, and all the violins at 9 and 10, in what I think of as a standard. The Ukrainian orchestra, however, had the violins both sides at 3 and 9, and had the cellos at 10, double basses at 11. I hadn't seen this format before, and it sounded great. Who decides where the orchestra sit? Is it the conductor, the orchestra... Or do composers make suggestions? There are probably more than two, but there are two main differences in the way orchestras are set out. And I believe, principally in Vienna, the orchestra is, as you describe, set out like the Ukrainian orchestra, with the violins on either side, first violins on the conductor's left Mm. and second violins on the conductor's right. And the theory behind that is, well, actually, no, you see, there are variations, but this is one of them. And the principle behind that was the second violins, therefore, would not be hidden by the first violins. They would be heard equally. Mm. Now, the Viennese model, if you've seen the videos, the New Year videos, you might have seen that sometimes the double basses are along the very back. So they provide their bass from the back of the orchestra. In England... What, even behind the the brass and the timps and everything? Well, the brass will be on the side. Okay. On the sides. With the cellos in the middle. Gosh. 
And what, woodwind split? Now, I, I, I find this slightly confusing because I, I haven't really worked with an orchestra that's placed like that very much at all. But Anne says, who places them? Does the orchestra decide to be like that? Or is it the, the house yes, style the, or something? The, yes, there are kind of standard setups. Now, the conductor can start dibbling around. And I've been known to dibble myself, especially in an opera pit where you have to make decisions because it's not quite big enough to set out the orchestra the ideal way mm. that you would like. But fundamentally, I'm used to what has now become standard in this country, the way that, that you saw and uh, that the RPO was set out which would be first violins on the conductor's left and then next in a semicircle, second violins, going around to the violas and then the celli. Now, some orchestras, I've seen the Vienna play like this as well, have the violas on the conductor's right. Mm. Now, that's because they like to feel that the violas are not being hidden in the ensemble so that they are more prominent and the cellos, which by and large, can play louder mm. um, than the violas, will be within the string ensemble. I mean, conductors can sort of fiddle around. Composers, though, would not think of saying how the orchestra should be set up unless it's a smaller ensemble. So if you have a, a modern piece with a selection of instruments, then it's quite often that people like Peter Maxwell Davis would actually suggest a seating plan mm. which would suit the music well. And, and to be honest, we do think about how the orchestra will be set up, how the ensemble will be set up. We think about it and talk about it. But I would just say that in San Francisco, in the opera pit there, I walked in and the leader of the orchestra was sitting where the second violins would normally be. Now, this is something that I've seen in other opera pits. In fact, Wasvigani <laughs> tried insisting on this. The idea is that then the leader is not sitting right next to the pit rail. I see. And the first violins are not next to the wall. So you put the first violin side there and their sound has a slightly better idea. But who said, then sits directly on the... Uh, well, the second violins oh, were directly on my left. Uh, now, I had a conversation with the leader who'd been leading that fabulous orchestra of Los Angeles and San Franciscan musicians. I said to her at one stage, are you happy there? Because I'm not used to this particular seating. And he said to me with a grin on his face, I fought all my life to be sitting here as the leader, and I'm comfortable. <laughs> so so uh, uh, that was fine. Is it? Have you ever gone into a pit and seen the orchestra laid out quite differently, and it's like getting into a car you've never driven before, or if you've, if you've only been used to driving automatic cars and you suddenly have one with a gear lever or a gear lever on the right-hand side or sitting in a left-hand drive car? Is it strange? Because... As a musician, you don't have to think where your players are because they're like your 
organ stops. That sounds terribly insulting to orchestral players, and I don't mean that. But you like to know where everybody is. <laughs> and, do you ha- and if you have to keep looking for them, it can slow yeah, you down. Look, the first thing you do when you walk into a new orchestra is that you cast your eye over the orchestra and the way they're arranged. Mm. Because seatings can change in a subtle way, and you don't want to land up instinctively wanting to address the horns and look up at the trombones. No, you don't. So, yes, you do. It's the first thing you do, really. You just check where everybody is seated and where the percussion is, because that can sometimes be straight in front of you. The timps can be straight in front of you in a big concert layout, but sometimes they'll be to one side and the percussion might be on the right or left. So you, 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 you conductor does want to know where the handbrake is. And thank you for that very interesting question. I love the way she said she liked the um, Ukrainian setup. She thought it sounded great. Yes, and the sound would be subtly changed mm. and, and different, but the orchestra must be happy with the way they are set out because people get used to hearing elements of the orchestra in a particular way. Mm. So that's important. Have we ever been to Glastonbury and what did we watch or attend? Well, the answer is me, no. Stevie? I've never been to Glastonbury, but have you ever been to a pop festival? No, because I'm afraid of huge crowds. That's the end of it. No, well, that's, that's hardly true, is it? Why? Well, you do it for money. <laughs> you what play you to enormous crowds. Yes, but I'm not in the crowds. That's no, on a uh, stage. Uh, uh, uh. I, I haven't uh. yet performed at Glastonbury. Um, Would you like to go to them? <laughs> no, I'm afraid of them. I can't bear it. Football crowds, even Wimbledon, all these places where people throng. I'm not great at thronging. So I feel awful about that. So we haven't loved and been at any of these. Kirsty Reader wrote and asked us that. Kirsty, I feel so awful. We haven't been to Glastonbury. You found us out. You found us out. I've got another question for you here, Master. It's from lovely Joyce Mulligan, who such a... Oh, now look, hello, Joanna Stephen. Because I had my cataract on recently, I found myself listening to your wonderful podcast. I had the honour of working with you, Stephen, when you came to Dublin a few years ago to adjudicate... I'm not going to say this right. Feischkoil? No. <laughs> Feischkoil? I've Conductors been practicing that. How I, is it? It's say a huge it. competition. I've been practicing that for years and years, and Come. I always get it wrong. It's written F E I S C E O I L. Yes, it's call the it Fesh. Fesh. I, I call Fesh. it the Fesh. Fesh. Okay. With the other conductors, Gareth Hudson, David Brophy, who is our conductor of the Dunleary Call to South America. Joanna, I also really enjoyed your one woman show. Thanks, dear Joyce. Pavilion Theatre when you came to Dublin. Now, this is the question. It's for you, Stevie. When the composers wrote their scores back in the 16th and 17th centuries, did they have to write them out for each individual member of the orchestra? As as you know, there was no photocopying available then. That was laborious, don't you think, to have it write it all out? No, that of course, hand copying was absolutely essential. So copyists had to write the whole thing out? Yes, and the same is true for choral music. So there, there are part books for choral pieces written in four or six parts. There's a famous one called the Eton Choir Book. And part books would include just your part. Mm. So, of course, they had to be handwritten. And it became a real art. I think what you're hinting at is that when Bach wrote a new cantata every week, he would present the music to the musicians and they would play through if they were lucky before the performance in the chapel. So it has to be really clear. Copyists became extremely important Mm. because it's the same now. 
musicians tend to prefer a particular kind of typeset because it's easily readable. Yeah. And you can find exactly where you need to be in rehearsal. So it's got to be clear. And in those days, the composer probably did write out his own parts. Later on, of course, in uh, Rossini's time, there would have been others who would have copied out all the parts. Do you think because these copied out parts were quite expensive and quite rare, is that when that became the custom for players to share a piece of music? Because mostly you have two players playing off one piece of music, you do don't now. you? Yes, you well, do you said now. now, but they would have then, surely. No, no. But they would have each had their own piece? Well, well, the orchestras were considerably smaller. Mm. Don't forget that. With extremely large orchestras, it makes sense if you've got an orchestra of 100 or 90 or 80 or 90, you don't want 80 or 90, 90 music stands clattering up the stage. Okay. So to share makes, makes a lot of sense. But I don't think so way back when in the 17th, 18th centuries. Do you think they had better memories then, that once they'd played the music, they had a lot of it in their minds? No. No, no okay, no, thank you. because they were playing Thanks for, for correcting the, me so suddenly. The, <laughs> I would have remembered. <laughs> but, no, but you remember the most arcane things, but not necessarily roots through mm. Scotland. No, the, the, the music, the music is, was always new then. Mm. So when they'd played a cantata once... They would hand the music back and it would go onto a shelf. This music talk is very much hindered by aeroplanes today. I'm so sorry, we're quite used to them. And it's quite a sort of soft sound, but it is always in the background. We live in sort of jet alley, really, don't we? Sometimes. Yes. Just to finish that rather intriguing subject, oh. copying became extremely important. And I remember when Herbert Howells, the composer, gave me composition lessons... He often said to me when he was looking at one of my scores, he would say, yes, for the engraver, you need to be clearer. Because, of course, music was engraved before it was photocopied. Of course it was, yeah. like newspaper, print. And these people who were reproducing music really were artists with skills of a very high quality. Well, thank you for that, Maestro. And thank you so much, Joyce Mulligan. And I hope we see you again when we come over to Dublin. And until then, if you could just secretly tell me how to pronounce fish oil. Fish oil. It isn't fish oil. I know it isn't. But just if you could just tell me Look, how to pronounce it. all my friends in it. Dublin, especially the manager, are going to be bringing this home to roost with me. I'm, I'm so ashamed that I don't know how to say it. I do know how to say Dunleary. Anyway, lots of love to you, Joyce, and thank you so much. And thank you for listening to this titchy, weedy little episode of Joanna and the Maestro.